Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. We're so glad you're tuning back in as we continue through the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Now, as we begin the sermon uh, this week, we're going to begin in kind of on a serious note. That's going to be kind of different than normal. Uh, but as we get into this section of Scripture, there's some very serious things that are happening, and it's namely the death of John the Baptist. And it kind of allows us to, to look through that scripture and address the issues that are happening in our nation. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick up right here in verse 17. So, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, if you just kind of stop right there and you look at this whole paragraph, you see a whole lot of bad things happening. You've got Herod who has stolen his brother Philip's wife, and actually Herodias was their niece. And so there's a whole lot of problems going on in this story. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. She had a grudge against John because John was speaking against their marriage. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod would go and he would listen as John preached this, this story of repentance. You need to repent of the sin that's in your life. And he was greatly perplexed because he knew his life was sinful. And he went to him and he heard him gladly, but he was still kind of stuck in this in-between. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Now, we've just taken another step in this, in this sinful mess, right? So not only is he married to his brother's wife, who was their niece, now her uh, daughter comes in, Salome, from her first marriage, uh, which would also you know, be family, and she's doing a provocative dance, and he's liking it, and he's liking it so much that he's saying, look, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And so he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. You see, this went bad really quickly. And this is exactly what happened. He couldn't go back on his word. Herod couldn't go back on his word. So Herod had John the Baptist's head brought in on a platter. This innocent death of a, of a godly man, a righteous man, a, a man that Jesus said was, was the greatest of all men. He, he, was, he was a prophet. And when Jesus, Matthew tells this in, in chapter 14, 12, and 13, and they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. I mean, this was not only the greatest prophet, as Jesus would say, but this was his own cousin, his own family, who has been innocently murdered. Uh, and he was murdered because of sin. As we look at this story and as we look at what's happening in our country and in our nation, uh, we can see that, that sin is running rampant. And sometimes sin uh, causes people to lose their lives. I mean, for the wages of sin is death. 
And sin has many names and many identities. This is what Paul would say in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I mean, there's so many different names and so many different identities, but sin is sin. And no matter what you call it, it's sin. No matter what name or identity you choose to call sin, it can either be practiced and accepted, ignored and allowed to fester, or detested and avoided. And so when it comes to sin, no matter what we tag it as a name or as, as an identity, there's three things that you can do when you are um, in, in the face of sin. It can be practiced and accepted in your life. It can be ignored and allowed to fester, or it can be detested and avoid it at all costs. Now, for, for some of us, it's easy to uh, detest some sins. We, we read about sins like the ones we just read about, and we're like, that's gross, that's disgusting, I detest that. However, there's other sins that we call little sins that are no, real, they're no big deal, and so we, we practice them, we even accept them into our life, and, and we don't judge people based on those. And, and what happens is we begin to ignore sin. And when sin's ignored, it grows silently. Sin is often silent, and it's often a silent killer because it's often ignored. Now, let me, let me address this issue. Racism is a sin. Often, it is a silent sin that we tend to ignore until it takes a life. Racism is a sin. It's a sin that we are struggling with in our nation and our country right now. America still has a sin problem, namely a racism sin problem. You see, America still has a sin problem, and maybe that's become more and more obvious this week as you've watched the news. But if we're going to be honest, we can name it as a racism sin problem. The church can't ignore it because sin can't be ignored. We have to confront prejudices by listening to those who are hurting, learning from the past, and engaging all people groups with love, justice, and acceptance. We can't remain silent. You see, we can't afford to be the people of God who claim to have the heart of God and not respond to sin like the Son of God. And, and that's, that's, I'm talking to the church. We have to respond with the character of Christ in the face of sin. Jesus, when he hears about this in John the Baptist and his death, he's, grieve, he's deeply grieved by it. We should be grieved by the things that have happened. We should be grieved about the injustice in our country. We should be grieved at the senseless death of George Floyd, just as Jesus was the senseless death of John the Baptist. We should be grieved, and we should not remain silent. We should not ignore sin and allow it to grow and fester. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. I tell you what, church, the church cannot stay silent in the face of sin. We cannot stay silent in the face of racism. The church needs to live out gospel-centered and repentance-filled lives that engage those who are lost and hurting. There's been a call put on each and every one of our lives, and it is to, it's to oppose sin, is to preach repentance just as John the Baptist did, to stand up in the face of those things, and to give our lives 
for the advancement of the kingdom. And so we can't stay silent when we see sin. We can't stay silent. So right now, I'm going to ask us to pray. I'm going to pray for us as we think about the silent sin that is tearing our nation apart. Let's pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we come to you grieved as you are. Grieved at the prejudiceness and the racism that has gone on in our country. And Father, we ask that you would live out your character through us in the midst of sin, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of pain. And Father, if we have wronged anyone because of our own prejudiceness or our own racism, Father, we ask for repentance and reconciliation. God, that you would use your church to be gospel-centered and repentance-filled in a way that brings healing to this land. Guide us and lead us back to you because you are our only hope. Father, hurt, help those who are hurting. And Lord, use your church to not remain silent, but to love as you love. In Christ's name, amen. You see, as we talk about this, we talk about what it means to be gospel-centered. Gospel-centered is living with the worldview of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and actively engaged in Jesus' plan to redeem this broken and fallen world. As we look at this world and we see that things are broken and falling apart due to sin, those of us who are gospel-centered, we live in light of Jesus Christ, what he, who he is and what he's done. And then we actively engage in his mission. We find that we are called to be a part of his mission and part of that is being repentance-filled. As we talked about last week, going out and proclaiming repentance, proclaiming repentance through the practice of personal repentance. We're to be a people who lead by repenting, showing that we know that there is nothing good in us except for Jesus Christ. So we make a point to, to repent, to call out to God for help. So as we look to be gospel-centered and, and uh, repentance-filled, a gospel-centered and repentance-filled life has compassion for others. It has compassion for others. So as you have your Bibles there, we're going to pick up in the story in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. See, he had sent them out, right? Now they're coming back and they're telling him all that he had done, they had done. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they've been doing all of this ministry and they're kind of wore out. And so Jesus is like, look, let's, let's slip away for just a little bit. Let's get some food. Let's get some rest. And so picking up in verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So they see them on the boat. They see that. And, and really, like if you look at it, uh, they ran about eight miles to get ahead of where Jesus and the disciples are going. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I want you to see that he saw and he had compassion. He saw. Now, let me ask you, how do you see people? I think that's a fair question. As we, as we look at the multitudes, as we look at the news, as we look at uh, the, the gatherings of people that we're, that we're watching, how do you see people? Do you see people 
through the lens of Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done and actively being involved in Jesus's mission to redeem the world. Do you see people through that lens or do you see them through a tainted lens, maybe a political lens, maybe, maybe a, a racial lens? See, we should be looking at people through the lens of Jesus and that would mean that we have compassion on them. So how do you feel about people? These are, my, these are my questions for you. How do you see people? And then not only that, how do you feel about them? See, this word compassion, it really means to be moved in one's bowels, right? It is, it is this physical feeling that you have of an upset stomach. I mean, it, it churns your stomach. So when Jesus gets off the boat, he sees these people have ran miles ahead to get there ahead of him because they want to be around him. And we're talking thousands of people. We're talking mobs of people. And he sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. He is literally upset. And it's hard to ignore an upset stomach. Am I right? You can pretend that you're not having an upset stomach. You can pretend that you don't need some Pepto-Bismol. You can pretend for a little while, but eventually you're going to say, I need something because my stomach is killing me. And Jesus sees the crowds and he's sick to his stomach because they are like a sheep. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost and they are dying. They are blinded by sin. They're blinded by selfishness. Let me ask you, how do you see people? And, and not only that, how do you feel about them when you do see them? Are you moved with compassion for the multitudes? Now, if we talk about this for just a second, the world's population is over 7 billion people and about one-third claim to be Christian. Now, we know that all those who claim are likely not actually followers of Christ, but let's pretend that they are. If we assume that they are followers of Christ, that leaves 4.6 billion people who today stand under the judgment of God because of sin and are on the road that leads to eternal hell if the gospel is true. How do you see the crowds? How do you feel about the people? Do you see them as sheep without a shepherd? Does it make you upset does, is there a compassion in you that just wells up inside because you see that if something isn't done, if something isn't changed, they're under the wrath of God because of sin. You see, sin is either accepted and practiced or it's ignored and allowed to fester or it's rejected. And so if we ignore the sin problem in this world, then we ignore the people who are wrapped up in sin. We can't afford to ignore people. We can't ignore, afford to ignore them and the sin that they're involved in. You see, living gospel-centered and repentance-filled lives changes the way we live personally. I've talked about this over the last few weeks. There's two things that I've really learned over this quarantine about the church and the church being the body of Christ. We need personal discipleship. We need to be reading our words and being in tune with the Holy Spirit, the power of God that has been given to us, that indwells us. We need to have personal discipleship. If we're gospel-centered and repentance-filled, it's going to change us personally. It's going to change the way we view and are involved in the church, corporate relationships. It's going to change how we see the mission of God and where we, where we jump in and where we join in. It's going to change the way we view those who are lost and the way we seek to minister to those who are hurting and in need. It's going to change us. It's going to change us if we're gospel-centered and repentance-filled. If we live gospel-centered and repentant-filled lives, we can't ignore the crowds who need Jesus. So church, I'm talking to you. When you see the crowds, 
Do you find it easy to turn and to ignore? Or are you welling up with a compassion to go and to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ? You see, gospel-centered compassion is a gut-wrenching awareness of the spiritual condition of others combined with an awareness of a personal mandate and call to live out the Great Commission. When we have a compassion, a Jesus-driven compassion, when we see the multitudes the way Jesus does, there's a gut-wrenching awareness that there are those in our midst who are dying and going to hell. It's gut-wrenching. Not only that, but we take full account that there is a personal mandate on each and every one of us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We are called to go. It's a personal mandate. But here's what we know. Compassion is imperative for commission. It's imperative because if the church loses its compassion for the multitudes, it loses its motivation for the Great Commission. And for many of us, we have lost our motivation for the Great Commission because we fail to see the crowds with compassion. We've made it about us. The church has become so inwardly focused that it's forgotten that there are those outside the church who are perishing, who need to know the shepherd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Gospel-centered and repentance-filled lives make the most of an opportunity. If you have compassion and you see the crowds, then you're going to make the most of the opportunities that God gives you. Let's continue to read there, picking up verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So the disciples are like, look, we have tried to get away from these people. We came to this desolate place, but they were here. They beat us to it. It's now getting late. We've been doing ministry all day long. Why don't we just send them away into the villages and let them buy themselves something to eat? Because we're all really hungry at this point. And so Jesus says, and he answers them, you give them something to eat. What? There's thousands of people. There's 12 of us. Look, what do you want us to do? And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Like, what are you wanting us to do? Maybe they're saying, this amount of people, it's going to take more than a half a year's wages to pay for that much food. 200 denarii is more, more than half a year's wages. Or maybe they're saying, like, if we could scrounge up all the money we had, that's, that's all we have. You want us to go out and spend that much money to feed all these people? Jesus is telling them, I want you to feed them. I want you to see the opportunity that's in front of you. There's compassion and now there's an opportunity. A gospel-centered and repentance-filled life sees an obstacle as a ministry opportunity. Let me ask you, do you see the obstacles in your life as ministry opportunities? Where God says, hey, I want to use you here. See, Jesus sees an opportunity for his disciples to do ministry. They see an obstacle that is out of their resources and abilities. And just as we learned last week, Jesus is concerned, is far more interested and concerned about uh, us and his dependence than our ability to perform. Christ is far more interested in our dependence in him than in our ability to perform. He's wanting us to rest on him, to lean in on him, to look for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Christ wants to use what we have exactly where we are to reach those who are in need. Do you see that as an obstacle or an opportunity? God wants to use you exactly where you are 
You might say, but I'm in a desolate place. He wants to use you exactly where you are. What do you want us to do? Spend 200 denarii with exactly what you have to reach those who need Jesus Christ. Do you see that as an obstacle or an opportunity? Because see, many of us will begin to make excuses. Well, I just don't have the resources. Well, I just don't think I'm called out for that. I don't think I'm gifted for that. I'm just going to start making excuses because I don't think I can do that. I don't have the resources or the abilities. And Jesus says, but I want you to take this opportunity. Verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. I mean, there's thousands of people here. And he's got them sitting down in groups of 150. And he says, I got five loaves and two fish. Now we know that this was found from a little boy, right? In verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the people And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate. Thousands of people ate, and they were satisfied with five loaves and two fish. Now, really, this isn't like a full loaf of bread. I mean, this would have been probably like a biscuit or a cracker and two sardines. And this is one poor kid's meal. I mean, uh, as we find out in the Gospel of John, this was barley wheat. So that's the poorest of all of them. So, um, or barley grain. And so these were, this was just some little kid who had gone off to see Jesus. And his mom was like, now, son, don't, don't go off without your lunch. You're going to get hungry. And so she sent him off with his two sardines and his little biscuits And that's what Jesus takes and he breaks it and he blesses it and he distributes it until they all eat and are satisfied. So let me ask you two simple questions. What has God given you that he wants to use for ministry? Now you think about it. God wants to use you exactly where you are with exactly what you have to further his kingdom. What has God given you that he wants to use for ministry? Are you making excuses? Is it resources? Is it talent? Is it possessions? Number two, are you willing to allow God to use your possessions and resources to further his kingdom? Or are you just going to hold on to them for yourself and for your own pleasure? And this is, this is where this little boy is. He can either give up his lunch and feed multitudes, or he can hang on to it and feed himself. And for many of us, we don't see the bigger picture of what Jesus wants to do by using the goods that we have to bless the multitudes. I like how Francis Chan and David Platt put it in their book, in their book Multiply. As we come alongside the broken, hurting people God has placed in our lives. Now listen, there's a lot of broken and hurting people in our lives these days. Let's remember where our power comes from. These are not mere physical issues that we can correct through hard work. The, the, the issues that are going on in our world right now are not physical issues. They're spiritual issues. These are spiritual issues that run deeper than we can imagine. There are issues right now, these sin issues that you can name and you can give them all kinds of different names are causing people to be broken and hurting and it's spiritual issues and God wants to do a work. God has supplied us with everything we need in order to fulfill his calling. God has given you everything you need right now in the place that you are, with the possessions you have, to further his kingdom. 
The question is, are you willing? Are you willing? Now, do this with me. I want you to hold out your hands like this. And I want you to look in your hands. And with your imagination, I want you to think about the things that you have. Just think about it. Think about your property. Think about your possessions. Think about your gifts and your talents. You can either hold these out and say, God, use them and use me for the furthering of your kingdom. Or you can close your hands and you can grip them tightly. And you can say, no, they're just for me. Are you willing to look at the crowds with compassion? Are you willing to see them the way Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd? And are you willing to use what you have where you are to be part of the mission of God? So, a gospel-centered and repentance-filled life exposes our sinful motives. We all have sinful motives. There's all types of selfish things that come to the surface as we begin to follow Christ. And especially if we become gospel-centered and repentance-filled, we're going to begin to see the things in our lives that don't line up with the calling of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 43, And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Now, I've been telling you, it's been thousands of people, thousands of people following them. If there's 5,000 men, then you got to think about women and children. There could be up to 20,000 people here. We had five loaves, two fish, and now there's 12 basketfuls left over. How many disciples are there? Who was hungry, trying to get to a, a desolate place in the very beginning of this story? Who was trying to get a break? These disciples who have been doing ministry and, and Jesus fills them up. John chapter 6, 14 and 15 also records the story. And it says this about it. When the people saw the sign that, had, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus saw the motivation behind these people. He saw that they wanted to make him king, that their motivation was a political one. They wanted a king. They wanted to be fixed. They wanted to be fed. And so they were coming to Jesus to make him king. And here's what we know. When people seek a political solution for the problem of sin, they are left delusional, disappointed, and divided. Our world sees the problem and refuses to call it sin. And so it's trying to seek a political solution to a sin problem. Let me tell you, and there's only one solution to a sin problem. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He came not to be a political leader, but to be the person who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ. And if we look to anything else other than Jesus, we're delusional. We're so confused. We're going to be looking in all the wrong areas. We're going to be disappointed because it's always going to fail. And we're going to be divided. And I don't even need to give you any examples on that because you see that we are so divided because we all are pulling for our own motives, our own selfish wants and desires. And so Jesus slips away. Later in John chapter 6, verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
They're still chasing after Jesus. And Jesus says, look, I know why you're coming here. It's not because you saw signs. It's not because you want me to be Lord of your life. It's because you ate and you were satisfied. It's because you want me to fix you. You want me to feed you. You want me to provide the things that you want. You don't really want me to be Lord. Jesus exposed their motivation for following him, and it revealed their true character. See, many people want to fix me, Jesus. Many people want to feed me, Jesus. But very few want a fill me, Jesus. Because a fill me, Jesus, makes us come clean with our true selfish motivation. It makes us become repentance-filled. It makes us take inventory of our life that we've, we've made selfish and say, I, I don't want it to be about me anymore. I want it to be all about you. It makes us become gospel-centered. You see, a life that is not filled with Jesus will never have the character of Jesus. And eventually that will become obvious. A life that's not filled with Jesus will eventually show its true colors that it doesn't have the character of Jesus. I like how Ed Stetzer says this. If Satan cannot compromise our beliefs, he is happy to settle for our character. Now, as I told you about the multitudes, I said that one-third of the world calls themselves Christian. And, and he may not be able to change our beliefs or compromise what we believe because of how we were raised, but he is happy to destroy our character because people who aren't filled with Jesus will never have the character of Jesus. They may follow Jesus for a little while because they like to be fixed. They like to be filled. A lot of people, they come back to the church. They come back to Christ because they've messed up somewhere in their life and I just need to get back to God. I need him to fix some things in my life. And they don't last very long because they don't want Jesus to fill their life. They just want Jesus to fix their life. Continue reading in John chapter 6, 66 through 68. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him their character became obvious. It, it wasn't fun for them anymore. It was becoming more difficult. They were going to have to sacrifice. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Church, we need to be gospel-centered, especially in the face of sin, especially in the face of ignored sin. Sin that can't be ignored any longer. We need to be gospel-centered and repentance-filled followers of Jesus who see with compassion. We need to look for opportunities to minister and seek to live out the character of Christ. We can't remain silent anymore. There is a great commission that we're all called to. Will you go? Will you tell those that you know about Jesus? Can I pray for us? Father, I thank you so much for your word. I ask God that you would not just fix us, not just feed us, but God, you would fill us with your very presence, that you would allow us to not ignore sin that's in our lives personally or in our families or in our church or in our community or in our world, but God, we would be opposed to it like John the Baptist and we would preach repentance by practicing personal repentance in our lives. Father, use us. Use the gifts, the talents, the resources and all the things that we hold with an open hand to further your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Love you. Look forward to seeing you back here as soon as possible. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons 